the year before we open presents. And uh, so Luke 2, verses 1 to 7. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the end. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we uh, pray as a recognition of how much we need you. Uh, Lord, my uh, preparation is of no use. Uh, Lord, even our attendance here is of no use unless your spirit comes. So would you do in us uh, what uh, we could not do ourselves? And that's change us. Do this for your glory, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, it, right here in these uh, seven verses, especially when you combine them with what happens in chapter one, uh, what you'll see are Jesus's uh, two natures uh, identified. They're being classified in, in two ways. One is Jesus's nature as a human being, and the other is Jesus' nature as being God. And so you, you see him being referred to as God in chapter one in the following ways. First, he's miraculously conceived by Mary through the Holy Spirit. He has a divine nature. Then you have the angel who tells Mary that he's going to be the king in line of David for all eternity, which means he is divine. The angel tells Mary that her son will be the son of God. You have Mary who goes and sees her cousin Elizabeth. And even Jesus, who's just a fetus, he is, he is praised as God by in utero John who leaps in Elizabeth's belly. He's also praised by Elizabeth, and he's praised by Mary, and then his uncle Zechariah acknowledges his divine nature. So, Jesus is divine. And you get done reading chapter 1 of Luke, and you've got to ask the question, if God decides to come to earth as a person, what kind of birth would you expect? What would be the setting? What circumstances would surround this monumentous event? What would his parents be like? What, what kind of people would be around his birth? And then you get to chapter 2. <laughs> and in chapter 2, you find out who his parents are. They're both oppressed people. They're Jews. They're being forced to live under Roman rule and pay unjust taxes to a, a corrupt government. That's the way God was born. His parents weren't just uh, oppressed, they were also poor. They have no money or network to even get a room for the night. And Jesus is born not in the privacy and comfort of his home. Instead, his parents are forced to travel a hundred miles to be rejected by an innkeeper. And then Mary has to give birth in a cattle stall and lay her baby in an animal feeding trough. See, Jesus enters the world in about the most uncomfortable, messy way possible. Mary didn't get a Tempur-Pedic bed. Mary didn't get an epidural. She wasn't taken care of by a bunch of medical professionals. There's no pomp and circumstance of Jesus' birth. There's just straw 
and animals. Andrew Peterson, he writes a song about Jesus' birth, and it goes like this. He says, it was not a silent night. There was blood on the ground. You could hear a woman cry in the alleyways that night. On the streets of David's town, and the stable was not clean, and the cobblestones were cold, and little Mary, full of grace, with tears upon her face, had no mother's hand to hold. See, here's Jesus. He's born into poverty. He's born into obscurity. He's born into indignity, pain, and even rejection. And one of the great mysteries of the universe is that when God the Son became a man, he spent his first night in a barn. It just doesn't line up, does it? See, what we expect lines more up with what I heard about Amazon a few years ago. A few years ago, Amazon was looking for a second headquarters. And it had cities apply to them on, on, on why, they, why Amazon should make their second headquarters in their town. And so to these 238 cities, they had these really extensive plans that they submitted. And then Amazon took those 238 and they picked 20 cities that they were going to go on a 24-hour tour of each of those 20 cities. And as you can imagine... The cities, they went all out to try to lure Amazon in. They wine and dine Amazon like you wouldn't believe. They went to outrageous measures. In fact, uh, Indianapolis, honestly, one of my favorite places. Might not be yours, but I love that place. And uh, Amazon, from, from, from the airport until the first place that they went, the first location they went, airport to, to the first location was 11 miles and the night before the executives from Amazon landed, they had crew upon crew upon crew of people, and all they did was pick up trash on those 11 miles. All to impress those people from Amazon. It was a red carpet treatment. Cities were going to do whatever it took to impress the second highest grossing company in the U.S. You'd expect that kind of entrance for Jesus, wouldn't you? Or take the, uh, the birth of the Prince William and Lady Catherine's first child, George. When he was born, there were 21 gun salutes that signal his coming, not just in London, but in New Zealand. Not just in London, not just New Zealand, but Bermuda. I mean, Bermuda and New Zealand are really long ways from London. But George got 21 gun salutes there. You had the bells at Westminster Abbey and many other churches, they were rung when George was born. You had all kinds of landmarks across Britain that were illuminated in blue to signify his birth. See, George was welcomed into the world with acclaim because he's a pretty big deal. So wouldn't you expect the same with Jesus? But this just isn't the pattern for his birth, this is the pattern for the rest of his life. When you see Jesus operate in his public ministry, he's not this academic philosopher who's trying to enlist students. He's not this military general who tries to enlist soldiers. He's a suffering servant, and he comes to die for the sins of the world. See, Luke is signaling right here in verse 7, Jesus' sacrificial death. Did you pick up on it when I read it? In fact, he uses the same words in verse 7 that he does in chapter 23, verse 53. 
See, at Jesus' birth, Jesus is wrapped in swaddling clothes, whereas at his death, he's wrapped in a linen shroud. At his birth, Jesus is laid in a manger, but at his death, he's laid in a tomb. At his birth, Jesus is born into isolated obscurity, but at his death, he's isolated because all have abandoned him. At Jesus' birth, he's rejected by an innkeeper, but then at his death, he's rejected by his father. See, Jesus' humiliation is how he exalted me and he exalted you. His rejection is how he accepted us. And Jesus joyfully chose humiliation. He joyfully chose rejection because that was the only way to save you and to save me. See, you and I, we're the ones who deserve to be humiliated. We're the ones who committed cosmic treason and revolted against our gracious creator. We're the ones who rejected his tender care. Now, I I know your rejection probably doesn't come in the form of hostility. You probably never had a shirt that said, I hate Jesus on it. But see, you likely wouldn't, just like you wouldn't call yourself a rejecter of Jesus, I don't think the innkeeper would have called himself an atheist or a Roman fanboy when he wouldn't let him stay there. He probably was just a card-carrying Jew. But we're just like that innkeeper, aren't we? We don't have room for Jesus in our feelings, in our affections, in our thoughts, in our calendars, in our decisions. It sounds like John 1.11. John says Jesus came to his own and his own did not receive him. Brother and sister, me and you, we're his own. He owns us because he made us. We bear his signature. See, the writer of Ecclesiastes says that eternity is written on our hearts. And eternity being written on our hearts means that we long for something that this world cannot provide. And we keep going back to the world, to the temporal world, to fill that void. And it just doesn't work. And every time we do it, we reject our maker who loves us. And he loves us enough to wrap himself in swaddling clothes and a linen shroud. He loves us enough to be laid in a wooden trough and then in a borrowed tomb. And that's love. It's a lot more than nostalgia. It's a lot more than some sappy Christmas tradition. That love's powerful. And it's powerful enough to transform a rejecter of God like me into a friend of God. This is the good news of Christmas, brother and sister. But not only does Jesus' humiliation and rejection in his birth, in his life, and his death cause us to reflect on how much he loves us, it also provides for us a model of how we're to live our lives. See, God becoming flesh shows us that the way up is down. Humiliation is what leads to exaltation. But doesn't that contradict the way that you and I live? I mean, our lives are all about going up and to the right, right? Up and to the right. That's where we're headed. I'm using financial terms here for some of you who are employed in those ways. Up and to the right. As time goes forward, you want to have more. Things get bigger. Things get better. You have more, more, more. But Jesus' way seems like it's down and to the right. That's why the incarnation contradicts the way that we live. See, our our ways are about being masters of self-promotion. We're masters of branding. 
In fact, these words, self-promotion and branding, they're even used in Christian circles. But think about it. Think if you were the think about it if you were God's PR person. If you were God's PR person, you were let in on he was about ready to send uh, Jesus into the world. And God says, hey, I want you to come up with a plan on how we're going to execute this. A marketing strategy, if you will. And you go to God and you say, God, how about this slogan? God, here's my schedule for how we're going to launch this or launch that. Here are the outlets we're going to use to advertise Jesus' arrival. Well, God finally will get sick of you. (laughs) The PR person, and here's what he's going to say. He's going to say, listen, here's how we're going to do it. Peasants, mangers, all into political danger. That's our strategy. See, what God's trying to do in the incarnation, he's trying to get into our heads that there's a different definition of greatness. See, our definition of greatness, his definition of greatness is not equivalent to brand power. It's not equivalent to social media following. It's not equivalent to your pedigree, the success associated with your family. It's not associated with, with financial success, what's in your bank account. Greatness isn't equivalent to your physical appearance, your, your measurements. Greatness isn't equivalent to your educational background, your career achievement, what your LinkedIn profile says. See, greatness in God's economy is all about humility. And humility is what's required for almost anything of value in the Christian life. Think about it. Humility is what you need to repent. Humility is what you need to love. Humility is what you need to abide in Jesus. So, brother and sister, this Christmas season, may we pursue a life of humility as we are pursued by our humble Savior who loves us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for pursuing us. (laughs) Oh, this is unbelievable. The depths, the lengths that you went to, that you might have us. And so, Lord, I pray that we would be convinced by what you did in reality, in history, by coming to the world as flesh, Lord, as living a perfect life, as dying on a Roman cross and being buried in a borrowed tomb. Lord, that we would look to those events for assurance and not the way we feel or the way that we perform morally. But we would look to you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.